Welcome to the Debated Podcast. Uh, This is our end-of-year discussion episode. Um, Due to the recording for this particular episode being much longer than any episode we've ever released, it's been decided to release the recording in two parts. And this first episode that you're listening to now covers the early months of uh, the UK's response to the coronavirus pandemic and the Cummings affair. And the second part will cover the Labour leadership election, the... EHRC report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, the Lib Dem leadership election, Brexit and the US election. So I hope you enjoy this first part. Dude, we are going to energise the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host Will. And in this episode, which is our end-of-year discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by three terrific guests. Joining me are Lauren Davison, uh, former co-host of the Left Wingers podcast, co-founder of the Young Fabians Criminal Justice Network, and Justice Reform Co-Chair uh, for Open Labour. Welcome back to the podcast, Lauren. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you again. Uh, also uh, joining us is William Kajani, the political betting analyst for Star Sports Betting. Welcome back to the podcast, William. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Excellent to have you back again. And finally, last but certainly not least, uh, once again, delighted to be joined by Torin Wilkins, director of our partner, the Centre Think Tank. Welcome back to the podcast, Torin. Thank you. Lovely to be on. So um, to begin with, I'd like to go back to the start of the year and the way that politics was at the beginning of the year. Obviously, in December, we saw the general election with the Conservatives returned with a very sizable majority, the Labour Party uh, suffering one of its worst defeats in its history. And politics seemed to be very much going back to uh, the the two-party system that we had um, previously, which had been somewhat in flux in 2019. So... Thinking back to the start of the year, I'd like to um, turn to you first, William. Um, How were you feeling about politics at the start of the year? What were you sort of like thinking about in terms of what 2020 would be like in uh, in politics? I was pretty apprehensive because I was not sure what was going to be done about sort of the big cultural divides that were, I think, continuing, but also exaggerated by the December election. And, you know that was an election I felt really closely involved in. Um, so mainly I felt apprehension about that. I had slight apprehension about Brexit longer term. Um, to my shame, um, I think stuff like coronavirus stuff wasn't really on my radar. I think there were people who were saying something about flu going around, but I didn't pick that up until we'll discuss it later, but well into next year. Um, but I didn't think that the political situation was very good. Um, I was dismayed by the conduct of many people um, from different parties in the election just gone, and at some points as well in the press. And I'm also afraid to say, not just the printed press either, um, particularly given the way that some stories during the election campaign have been covered. So I I couldn't say I felt good about it, and that was not just to do with the result. Um, as a disclaimer, I don't mean that my politics get into my work, but I'm not a Conservative supporter, but the whole way the election had been conducted and the conduct of the previous 12 months um, 
didn't have been a good place looking ahead to 2021. Um, now, of course, uh, Lauren, you are a member of the Labour Party, an active member of the Labour Party. How were you feeling at the start of the year, given what had just happened in the in the general election? I mean, horrified, to be honest. I, I think most people that, if they're going to be honest with themselves, most people that were Labour activists, unless they were in a super safe seat, I think most people had a sense that it wasn't going to go our way this time um, and that, you know, we probably weren't going to win this. I, I think I knew this throughout. It wasn't so much the shock of losing that got to me. It was by how much we lost. You know, an 80-seat majority was beyond what I ever expected because there just wasn't that level of popularity for Johnson on the doorstep. I know that, obviously, people preferred him to Corbyn, but I never got a sense that he'd be loved enough to get an 80-seat majority. I mean, you know, I understand that people felt they couldn't vote Labour for various reasons, and there were many different reasons. Um, I just didn't expect it to be as bad as it was I remember when the exit poll dropped I literally ran from the room crying because I it, I know how hard everyone worked and to not get payoff from how hard you work it kind of makes you reevaluate everything with politics that it doesn't actually matter how hard you work personally <laughs> there's no guarantee of a result and that is the most sort of painful thing and then a couple of months sort of at the start when I knew that there was going to be a leadership election happening in my party, which we'll talk about later. Um, that didn't fill me with much pleasure either, to be honest. Uh, now, Torin, as a former um, Lib Dem, and I know that the emphasis very much is on the uh, former, um, how, how did you feel about the, uh, the election result and, and the state of politics going into 2020? I mean, the, the election was really the beginning of the end of my my time in the Lib Dems. Um, and it, it became a party that I didn't even feel I could vote for, I think, in uh, being involved internally. Um, there, there was certainly this feeling, right, after when you had Tim Farron come in, uh, just after the massive defeat under Nick Clegg. Um, you know, it's kind of that things can only get better, you know, and, and all of the rest of it. And... and um, that was the point that you, I was sort of watching this party that I genuinely didn't really identify anymore, which was a bit scary for me, having been, you know, within that party since the age of 13. So I, I had a very long history and a very long connection to it, but I felt that it it was really struggling. It wasn't connecting with voters. It was, it, its Brexit message was something that half of the people inside the party I knew didn't even believe in, let alone outside. Um, and so we were hardly really being able to sell it if our own members didn't really support it, um, especially when I went to places like Wales. Um, we were really struggling with the message. So the election itself for me was was little uh, in the way of a surprise because I think, um, you know, I, I saw the, the the Johnson train, as it were, and his ability to, to connect with people um, better than what, certainly Joe Swinson managed during the election um and so yeah I, I did have this feeling of like things really can't get much worse than this which was bad because I was watching COVID-19 very very closely I mean I've had to do um quite a fair bit of stuff in terms of papers on like HIV so I was quite worried about that um so maybe saying things can't get worse is probably wasn't the best thing to say at the time but 
it was it was it's a pretty bleak situation was and is i would say um now you lead us very um neatly on to uh the next um area to discuss because of course um you know covid-19 perhaps not as many people as yourself were watching it at, at the start of the year and then throughout the early part of uh, the year it became much more uh, significant for people not just um here here in the uk but around um the world as it began not just in the uk but um globally and, and, and came on um people's radar how were we all feeling about the impact that it would have on um, politics were we sort of like fully aware of the extent that it would impact our lives uh, laura i'd like to turn to you first Right, well, I'm <laughs> I'm a bit of a worrier, so I was pretty terrified from the beginning. I was kind of, I'd had the worst case scenario in my head from the off, so I knew what I was going to do. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't think, to be honest with you, I was probably quite naive. I thought that people might follow the rules a bit more than they have. I thought the leadership might have been a bit stronger, which obviously it hasn't been. I didn't foresee a second wave quite this bad. I didn't quite foresee us being where we are now, um, <laughs> naively perhaps, I don't know. I kind of assumed that everyone was locking down. I was shielding. So I shielded from when it started until September. Um, I kind of just assumed that everyone would play their part. The government would step up, which again, very bold assumption. Um, and that things would generally probably be quashed. There would be, I don't, I don't know, I, feel like, I felt like, for once, the government might do something and listen to the scientists that were telling them what to do. But again, very naive. So I think there was a, a very uh, strong sense for me of naivety. And I, I look back now and I kick myself because I just think there was obviously they were never going to do anything that would harm their egos. Boris Johnson can't stand the idea of being disliked. Warren, how were you feeling about uh, the start of the impact of the pandemic in the UK? Were you... Uh, fully um thinking about how much it would impact politics what, what were you uh, thinking about i know obviously um center were uh, writing some sort of like uh, stuff related to it uh, quite early on yeah i mean i i was watching it carefully because of the fact i mean we, we've seen sars we saw mers that you know, the, the effect that these things, even on a small scale, and I mean, SARS got to the UK, but it was only like one or two cases. And we know that the effect that even that can have. So the there was there was a big sign early on, early in the year, that this this did not look like the same thing. It was it was a similar virus, but the effects of it looked like it would be far greater. Um so from the beginning, I was fairly worried that it would turn into lockdown. And there were some people, um, a bit like Rory Stewart, saying we need to go into lockdown quickly. We need to get get this sorted very fast. Um, but the, the stages of lockdown we've ended up going through, um, I thought lockdown would happen. I didn't think it would take as long. But again, a bit like Lauren, I, I sort of expected in my head that the, the public would actually you know, stick to to the lockdown and make sure that they got rid of it as fast as possible. And unfortunately, looking back on it, you've got countries like New Zealand and Taiwan, which managed with fairly good COVID plans, uh, interestingly enough, 
um, taken off of the MERS and SARS viruses. Um, they had very good plans, they put them into action um, and they ensure they had a clear message and they managed to deal with it. Um, the fact is we, we didn't have that and so it's perhaps not really surprising that we ended up in the situation that we did. Um, William, how were you feeling in terms of the impact at the start of the year? Did you think that, um, like Lauren and, and Torrent, that people would perhaps adhere to the rules more, that we would see stronger leadership from the government? The answer to much of this is that I don't know. And at the time, I didn't really know. Um, I, I have a mere culpa to admit here, which is that I was at and I worked at the Cheltenham Festival. Um, but in hindsight, it was an event that never should have happened. In hindsight, I think that that sort of two weeks where we had the delayed lag from seeing what was happening in Italy and Spain was the big missed opportunity. Not just in the sense that you could have um, prevented the spread of infection, but you could have done so at a time when we didn't have the resources available to track it. And this is the big difference you have between sort of the first wave and the second wave. Um, now, yes, the picture is bad and every single death is a tragedy. And I, I, I don't have any time for that. Was it weird or of COVID? I don't have any time for that. They're all awful, awful events and awful tragedies. But they're all mapped and we know so much more about the virus now. At that time, the big mistake the government made, I believe, was not moving its pandemic plan from flu to a sort of new novel coronavirus fast enough. I know there's a lot of hindsight in that, but um, there were definitely experts saying it. And I think um, not just communicating, I think, clearly enough how bad it was before it really began to take hold. Um, and again, it wasn't like, I know there's a lot of hindsight in this, but again, we had two-week warning. Um, if you want to actually go from Wuhan in China, we had three-week warning. We have all sorts of agencies set up to monitor this, and, and that's sort of my main fault going back to that time. I didn't know how people would react to lockdown. In the end, actually, compliance appeared to be very good um, on the face of it. Certainly the polling for lockdown was very much in support. I think it was the most popular British policy of the last 10 or 20 years. Um, there was near universal support for it. Even now, actually, there are majority support for restrictions, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Um, so I didn't know how people would react. Um, we haven't lived really for a situation like this, not least in the Western world. Um, SARS and MERS, obviously, I, I think proved to be in the end invaluable experience for um, Asia and other places close to those countries. But um, to be honest with you, it, it all looked very scary and odd. The, the only real thing I can remember thinking about was basically, um, will the Friday of Chum go ahead? I actually packed up early because I thought it wouldn't do. And basically, how do we secure and clean the house? Because my mum is vulnerable um, and was in Africa at the time she was coming back, which led to a mad rush to basically disinfect every surface and door handle, whatever we could get our hands on. Now, this is a very interesting um, point that I think, I think we've heard from the discussion and you've raised in particular, is this lag between 
actions that we were uh, seeing at the time in other countries and the reaction from the UK government. Now, in general, do you think that um, the issues that we have uh, seen are not necessarily issues in regards with the science, but issues in regards of knowing how to implement the science and how to uh, ensure that people understand how restrictions had uh, to be implemented and, and essentially communication is, is, is the fault with the communication through the government and through the media about how lockdown and these restrictions had to be done. Torin, if you'd like to come back with this first. I mean, I think one of the, the best examples of looking at a country that actually did it right and got the communication right was New Zealand. Um, and it had very, very strict controls, actually on a different area, which was its borders. Mm. Um, and it focused very heavily on ensuring quarantine times. And a lot of the stuff that I heard about the UK borders was they simply didn't have the resources to ensure that they had strict quarantine times for people who entered. So I think that's part of it, which is that, in fact, the the national lockdown side of things was in some ways perhaps slightly less less important than ensuring that you know we were focusing on external borders as well um something that a lot of people at the time i remember just going no we don't need to do that that's not really an issue so i think messaging was was a key key part of it which was you know as lockdowns go on um i think the worry has always been that people will get more complacent and especially during the dip between the, the first and second uh, waves, um, more complacent and, and therefore not following the rules as much. So, so I think it's, it's a balancing act with the lockdown itself, but I also think that the focus perhaps needed to be on, on a slightly different area. I mean, William, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that the issue was in regards to the communication and the translation uh, of information from the scientists to the public? Or what, what do you think? I think that um, your your question there, it, the answer to that is yes. I think there was a big problem in terms of um, communication, um, sorry, translating the science mm -hmm. into an effective public message. I also think that public message had individual problems with it. So... At some points, I appreciate this is more of an issue for the middle of the year and now, but at some points, the advice began to get very confusing. Um, I think that the simplest stuff um, worked best, um, i.e. stay home, protect the NHS, save lives, um, as an example. Um, I think one thing that was a big problem, and I know this is a bit, um, this is a bit technical, but... The sage, um, many of the sage assumptions, they didn't appear to be stress tested um, in the sense that sage came up with a lot of stuff earlier on um, that didn't appear basically to really match up with sort of reality. Um, mass gatherings will be fine is a famous example. Um, you know, we don't need to close down sports stains or whatever. Um, you can go and do this and that. And I think looking down the line, um, I sort of wonder where the modelling and the justification for that came. Because in the end, um, many people have their arguments a lot with Niall Ferguson's um, 
model for imperial college, but it looks to have been the closest to the real life outcomes that we got. Um, so I wonder in that inquiry at some point, what will be said about the early assumption Sage made? Um, going for the little tangent there. Um, turning to you, Lauren, do you think that in terms of the communication that that was uh, the key issue in which there were issues with people following the rules? Or do you think that it was perhaps something else, maybe not necessarily the, the translation of information from the scientists to the uh, public, but maybe it was just a, a situation that any government in, in terms of communication would have struggled with? What, what do you think? I think the important it is a multifaceted issue so I think obviously communication has its part and messaging that changes repeatedly because it did change they had new slogans every other mm. week or whatever you know to be fair to them hands face and space is a good one I think that's a pretty strong solid message and one I think should have been there for longer um, but there wasn't a clear strategy they seem to just be making it up as they go along mm. and then obviously which we'll come on to in a bit but the Dominic Cummings debacle I think that was a real turning point that I feel there was a certain level of goodwill and trust from the public towards the government that it, it was a turning point that I think reduced the level of compliance with what was being said because they felt that there was a double standard in the way that it was being handled. Mm. But also going into this crisis, we heard about the herd immunity idea, which yeah. in my view is completely tantamount to social murder. Let's be clear, like allowing vast swathes of your population to just get the virus and crack on and die, it's completely beyond what any responsible government would be doing. Mm. But there's also been an issue of cherry-picking the science, I think. So when you hear, trust the science, science isn't always a conclusive um, absolute. There are different scientific consensuses, different scientific opinions, um, and I feel like a little bit of that has gone on with our government. Um, they want to hide behind the science, but when the science isn't convenient for them, um, they take a different course. Now, one issue that I think is particularly interesting, you mentioned um, the Dominic Cummings affair, but before we get on to that, one issue that I think is really interesting is the conflict that we have seen between um, national government and uh, local government councils, uh, and, and the way that there have been issues in terms of them uh, working together. Of course, we've seen uh, disputes between Andy Burnham and the government and uh, others. I, I'm just interested in what you think um, could have been done better in terms of working with not just local government, but also um, other national uh, uh, governments like the, the, the Welsh National Assembly and the, the Scottish Parliament, etc. Lauren, if you could start with your response to that. Well, I mean, yeah, for a start, probably not disseminating in information to Andy Burnham via text mm. about five minutes before he was about to go on national TV and talk about it. That would probably be a good start. Um, but it just seems to be there's no collaborative approach. There's no goodwill between the different uh, governments at a devolved level and a national level. Um, I think the way that some areas have been treated with utter contempt by this government, particularly Manchester, and the way that they've attempted to sort of um, divide them by offering sort of MPs in certain areas this and that to rebel against Burnham um, the way that they've behaved to the other nations of the union I think again absolutely shocking it shouldn't be a case of one-upmanship it should be about everyone working together to basically get it done get it sorted 
not trying to say, well, I'm, I did better than you here. You did this, you did that. It's not really not the time. Um, and I would, I have been supportive of Starmer's approach as well, his um, constructive approach, because I think that's needed. And I think the public appreciates that. What I don't think is helpful is just the constant, um, almost hostility and aggression and the competing approaches trying to sort of outdo each other. It doesn't sit well with me at all. Mm. William, what are your thoughts on the way that the government worked with devolved administrations and local government? Terribly. They worked terribly with them. And it caused so many problems. I think the first point of contention here, contract contract tracing. Now, again, I'm not an expert in this, but I don't understand why trying to track people who had infections wasn't a job that was basically given entirely to every local authority in the country with Public Health England being sort of the central hub. Um, you know, who has the most up-to-date data on British citizens? It's their local authority and their local county council. They're, they're the government bodies with which we all interact most often, um, assuming you're on the map. Don't understand why that wasn't the case. Um, stuff such as testing rollouts should have been much more um, decentralised. I, I think also local public messaging, um, just basically allowing, um, you know, j- just letting the North East run the North East, letting the authority of Greater Manchester run Greater Manchester, do, doing all that sort of thing, um, I think has been a big miss for the government. Um, I think also working with the devolved administrations hasn't gone to plan at all. I appreciate there are political differences um, and I'm sure that some people um, will come back with a counter-argument that uh, we were being, or, you know, Downing Street was being usurped by Sturgeon and Holyrood um, and to some point Mark Drake in Wales. But again, as an example, you know, if you're not communicating, you're not reaching out to these um, leaders and their teams, what do you expect? Um, you know, this, I don't think Sadiq Khan got an invitation to come into number 10 for the first three months to crisis or something you know, in the middle of a respiratory pandemic based primarily on people's proximity to each other, you're not going to invite the mayor of your capital city and your most populous city to have any sort of strategy meeting. Why? You you know, what what even is the point of having mayors if not for a situation like this? so, So there's a lot of thinking to be done. I mean, Torren, what are your thoughts on this in terms of the way that the government worked with devolved administrations and local authorities? I mean, the the situation of metro mayors has become one where they're very good sort of mouthpieces for those areas, but they have not been given a huge amount of power to actually control lockdown. Um, With the Welsh Parliament as well, whilst health is a devolved area, the taxation, and this is the same in Scotland, taxation is not devolved fully to those countries in any way. They have some power over income tax. But that means that in terms of getting enough money for lockdowns, those uh, you know, metro mayors and those, the, those parliaments are essentially, they have to ask Westminster. They, they really don't have much choice. So in the end, despite devolution and despite those efforts to ensure that those areas have a voice of their own, they haven't in reality been given their own say because as much as the Welsh NHS, for instance, is under the hands of the Welsh government, 
the the lockdowns and their actual strategy really relies very heavily on what the UK government as a whole allows them uh, in terms of money. Um, so it for me, it kind of really pushed that message of needing stronger devolution to those areas, um, especially the Welsh Parliament, because otherwise we will have this situation in which um, the UK government as a whole is able to pretty much decide the policies for those areas during emergencies. Now, uh, one particular area that have uh, COVID has, of course, really, really impacted and impacted from uh, the very beginning uh, of the pandemic to now is education. And um, Tori, I know that you're on the um, steering committee for um, Comprehensive uh, Future, which is a, an anti-selection group. So, I mean, how do you feel um, COVID has impacted education and how well do you think that the government have responded to the impact that it has had on education? Just in terms of the 11 plus test, right, they managed to cancel GCSEs and A-levels. However, they still decided that 10-year-olds would still have to sit that 11 plus test. And frankly, there's a very simple reason why they decided. Um, and it's because if they let in a comprehensive intake, as in a intake without selection this year, uh, then it would have shown the thing that we've known for quite a while, and we've known it about schools that use either religious selection or on the other hand, uh, in inverted commas, academic selection using the 11 plus, um, is that their results are basically there because they select wealthier students uh, and students who are therefore more likely to get better results because of that, their income or their parents' income and therefore that's why they get the grades that they do. Um, but because of course they select all of the students who aren't on free school meals, um, very few of which have additional needs, then suddenly it looks like they're much better schools and they do much better. So essentially they managed to keep that myth going because of the fact that they refused point blank, even during the middle of a pandemic, not to run these exams. Um, and the fact is the exams themselves were not like GCSEs, they weren't like A-levels, they weren't in reality needed. Um, those areas do worse overall because they run these exams and because they have selection. Um, their overall grades are lower. So that for me was a, a very um, indicative thing, which is that something which was a, a sort of flagship policy under Theresa May those schools had exams despite the pandemic, mm. um, which I, I genuinely, when we're talking about such a system that is so unequal, I, I think that says a lot about the government policy during this pandemic. Um, completing um, your MA uh, during this period, Lauren. So from someone who has been going through uh, the education system during this crisis, how well do you think um, the government have handled it, and, and on Torrin's point as well, how, how do you think that they've handled it in terms of um, secondary schools and uh, selective schools and keeping um, 11 plus going whilst uh, cancelling other forms of examination? I mean, I can't speak like the full university experience. So I did my master's degree distance learning. So I, I suppose I've been lucky in a way that I haven't had to um, venture onto campuses and put myself at risk in terms of like obviously getting infected so I've done it from the comfort of home 
Um, obviously, the the wider issues around haven't gone away, so it is still a horrible time to be doing a day. Uh, from that aspect, it's fine. Although I would say that I think it caused a lot of issues for my degree rollout um, because a lot of university's resources went straight to the campus students mm. and left everyone else by the wayside. Um, see, I don't agree with the 11 plus. I, I had the opportunity to do the 11 plus and I didn't. Um, but it, I think it speaks to the priorities of this government, really, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> In terms of inequality, it, it shows exactly you know, the way they want to go. It shows exactly what they think of ordinary kids at comprehensive schools. William, how do you feel that the government have handled education during the, the coronavirus outbreak? Absolutely abysmally um, on a number of levels. Um, I think my biggest contention probably would be with that midway and later in the pandemic, in other words, closer to now, um, Schools, there's a myth that goes round, um, just to take a small detour, but there's a myth that goes round, which is basically that the schools closed. The schools didn't close and the teachers kept working. It was just, they were closed mainly for vulnerable kids um, as a safeguarding approach, which I totally understand. Um, there have been many big mistakes. I would have said the biggest mistake was trying to do a halfway house with exams when you already had um, essentially professional qualified assessments of school children because they come from the teachers um, and who else would you trust? The government didn't trust their teachers enough when they should have. Um, I think they have tried to be far too dictatorial to schools um, because I believe, and again, I'm not an educational expert, but I think one of the things that is clear is that education is a nuanced and quite complex public need um, and the government I think far too often tries to do the one shoe fits all thing um, especially regarding school closures and school openings. Um, three te uh, key teachers basically were or, or they are key workers they don't appear to have gotten that same amount of support um, you know, we're talking about testing and stuff in schools. Why only now um, are we having testing in schools? Um, you know, why weren't teachers and school children tested first? Surely they would be most likely to spread the virus onward. Mm. Um, you know, I appreciate you need to keep schools open for a whole load of reasons. But if you're going to do so, you need to invest in public health in infrastructure with it. But that, that all aside, I think probably the biggest mistake... Um, I think the government made and I think the biggest mistake it'll be one of the biggest things in the inquiry or it should be would be the way we approach university education and the way we approach senior education now I understand that kids have to take A levels um, although then again I don't see any reason why you couldn't have strong assessments if anything you should be able to have a better handle of a child's potential and or ability at that age than you would in primary school, but I digress. At, at this point in the middle of the pandemic, we moved hundreds of thousands of young people up and down England, Scotland, Wales, and in some cases, Northern Ireland, to from popular city to popular city, and then we put them all in densely populated buildings. What were we expecting? Hmm. I have absolutely no idea about this um, and why 
A, it was sort of blithely accepted, and B, why there wasn't really a serious natural contingency plan for this. Um, you know, university teaching, I know that you need some courses, you need universities to have face-to-face teaching. Mm. I don't understand why there wasn't sort of um, a tiering system for universities where stuff like medicines and doctoral sciences, you have to go face-to-face, that continues. Um, I don't understand why students weren't kept home. I know, obviously, there's a lot of nuance to this, but we've, we're moving millions of young people up and down the country in the middle of a pandemic, many of whom don't have their own cars, many of them have to have public transport, and now we're, we're about to do it again, and then we're going to do it in January. And we're going to be, sit back and be sort of shocked when the cases go up um, while they're living in flats all on top of each other. It, it makes no sense to me. Now, just to go back um, to the first lockdown and perhaps one of the incidents that really defined it, uh, Dominic Cummings' drive to Durham, what were people's reactions upon learning of this news, of of, of seeing uh, what had happened and then the subsequent um, reporting in the press and, of course, the... um, the press conference that he was uh, forced to give. Uh, Lauren, if, if you could start. I actually found it quite amusing. Oh, well, amusing is maybe not the right word, but those of us that were a little bit more politically engaged, we knew kind of the contempt for which the government and those around it hold for us and for the rules. So watching people clutching their pearls in horror that <laughs> Dominic Cummings had broken the rules, it, it was quite funny because, you know, I think everyone could see this coming. Um, But I do think it, on a wider level, set in motion a sort of level of complacency because people saw him flouting the rules and it seemed a bit of a turning point, really. But I feel like it was also the point at which this government started to really unravel Hmm. um, because a lot of the criticism of the government from those who would be their natural supporters became a little bit louder. And I think they thought it would go away much quicker than it did. Um, but I also think the press conference you mentioned, I think people would have had far more respect for him if he'd had the humility to not make excuses and just front it up and just say, yeah, I messed up. Him sitting on the TV in the Downing Street Rose Garden just chatting absolute breeze probably did more harm than good, I would think. I think it grated people and rubbed them up the wrong way um, and made them feel quite resentful, especially the fact he was late to his own press conference. William, I mean, what was your reaction to the whole uh, Cummings affair? I sort of went through many stages. I think the first one was sheer amusement um, at at the whole thing, Um, probably because it was a Friday. I remember this. It was a Friday. I was having another Zoom quiz. Um, (laughs) By that point, I was rather drunk. And I got this... um, I was actually... I follow Pippa Career on Twitter um, and I was looking, browsing through Twitter as we come to the end of our Zoom quiz and then I saw this breaking story about Dominic Cummings and I thought, I originally thought he'd written another blog or done a weird policy one thing, you, you know, stuff like, you know, like every six or seven months he, he writes words about, oh, it would be so much better if instead of civil servants we had chimpanzees with rocket packs or whatever running the government and yeah. people go oh isn't that kooky and interesting um and he never <laughs> it never actually works but i saw that um story and i thought hmm quite that's quite something 
then I saw the reaction to it. Um, then it began to consume my life a bit because we decided, well, if people are calling him for him to go, let's start betting on it. Um, so we knocked up this graphic. Um, we put him in a throne. Um, I think it was, it looked like the throne from Scarface or one of the um, old King <laughs> Edward VIII movies. Yeah. And then the discourse began, really. Um, my feeling with it was basically a bit of surprise because I didn't really know much about his circumstances. I, I, you know, he lives in London. I didn't think he'd have that issue, right? I mean, the first thing I sort of asked him was, why does he need to go anywhere? Doesn't he live, like, around the corner, basically, and, and gets taxis everywhere or whatever? Um, then as the story became clear, it was more confusion because I still don't really understand um, why he did whatever he did. I mean, I'm not going to go through it all because the listeners will be bored by voice for this point, but the whole story as I understand it was that his kid got very sick and his wife got um, ill and I think Mary Wakefield was showing symptoms so he needed childcare and he needed food and support. I just don't understand why he, he didn't ask anybody in London to come over and do like doorstep deliveries. That was what people were doing. People were door dropping stuff if their friends were really ill. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, this is a guy who's constantly going on about how he wants people... Um, with experiencing R stats and Pythons coming down the street. You know, by that point, you had the car upon Deliveroo. Where was he struggling to get food from? Where was he struggling to get anything from? You know, he could, he has an iPhone, doesn't he? Why didn't he just have a load of stuff dropped off at his door um, or arrange emergency childcare? And I just thought, it's so weird that one of the most well-connected guys in the country um, was sort of left at wit's end. And then he did the driving um, to Barman Castle whilst I think he wasn't symptomatic at that point, but he did all that with his wife being ill and his son in the car. And, and it all just appeared very confusing to me. And like Lauren says, I honestly just think um, if he'd said, I made a mistake and I'm sorry, he probably had enough press on fire at that point to get away with it. That was not the case later. Yeah. I mean... Torin, what was your reaction to the uh, the, the Cummings affair, the eye test at Barnard Castle, all, all, all the uh, minutiae that was involved with with it? It was confusing, um, and I, I think for the for the simple reason that you know during pandemics, the government absolutely needs to be seen as a a serious and reputable source of information, essentially. Mm. And if your special advisor is going to test his eyesight by driving somewhere, um, which is an incredibly dangerous thing to do if you are having issues with your eyesight, um, to then decide that the best thing you're going to do is to put other people in danger, it does not exactly help the government's messages of we're all in this together. Um, and I, I th that, for me, I think was a bit that summed it up, which was that essentially Dominic Cummings completely and utterly screwed up. And it looks like it because the story doesn't make any sense. And I think, you know, regardless of the real answers, that's all it came down to, which was the public just got this 
mirage of information that didn't make a huge amount of sense. And I just think at the end of it, the fact that he had to go driving to test his eyesight kind of summed it up, which was some bizarre explanations for what he was doing. We've talked quite a bit about the impact that it had on the public and that perhaps it made people uh, less compliant with the rules. Um, do we think that because of this, that it was inevitable that uh, at some time he would be sacked, even though he, he he had survived this? Or did we think that perhaps given that he had survived this, that he would just continue on uh, for as long as he wanted William, if you could start. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, after that, I, I really don't think there was anything that would have um, that would have seen him have to go, really. Um, or I didn't think that at the time. Um, with the recent reason for his leaving, um, I don't doubt the nasty stuff was briefed um, between him and Kane and others regarding Carrie Simons, but. Um, my feeling is, and I think we forget this, he had said for about six or so months um, he was going to go anyway. He'd said apparently, I think he wanted to do the election, then he needed surgery. I forget um, for what reason. I think he was going to go have it, have a break, and then finish off some things. I think the pandemic might have kept him there, but he wasn't apparently planning to stay in Downing Street forever. Um, but then again, at the same time, he did, I think, want to change the culture quite a bit, but I think he had the job for as long as he wanted it, and he probably got a bit, bit power mad. I think having survived it, he thought he could survive anything. And, and who would have blamed him, right? <laughs> Torin, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that having gone through this, having survived the the sheer scale of, of pressure from the uh, the press and, and the public, that he would have been able to stay as, as long as he wanted, or do you think that? This ensured that his card was marked, and that sooner or later he would uh, he would be thrown out. The fact that Boris and everyone sort of rallied around him, essentially, and so, you know refused to kick him out, um, for me just showed that he had an awful lot of power. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, you know you can see the sort of slogans from the Vote Leave campaign, and then the slogans afterwards that they were using for the government that were changing every four seconds. You know, it wasn't exactly the best strategy that they were using there. Um, you know, and, and I, I genuinely think it kind of marked his card. But on the other hand, he did manage to survive it. And, and, and I think, you know, had he been pushed out in a way that he was unhappy with, um, it would have been very difficult for Boris Johnson to actually deal with. Then again, Boris has an 80-seat majority. Mm. So... You know, it's it's always that question, what, what went on in number 10? You know, what actually happened? And and I, you know, that's, that is still the question. And it is very possible that he left because he decided to, which I actually sort of feel may actually be the, the more likely that if they knew he was going to go off soon anyway, why kick him out during a crisis? Just get him to leave of his own, you know, his own decision um, and and let him leave more peacefully um, and deal with a small aftershock, <laughs> ironically, very much not small, um, but the aftershock from his his trips breaking lockdown. I mean, what are your thoughts on this, Lauren? Do you think that uh, this uh, affair would have, you know, ensured that he would have been kicked out uh, 
sooner rather than later? Or do you think that it meant that he uh, was going to stay for uh, as long as he wanted? Well, I think it's interesting that they expended so much political capital and goodwill, basically, defending him in the first incident. Um, For me, that raised questions about whether or not they'd be able to do the same next time, because I personally didn't think that would be the last of his uh, debacles that he would cause. And I was just thinking, you know, if this happens again, (laughs) are they sure you're not, they're going to find it very difficult to sort of rally around him in the same way. Um, But also, yeah, he did have a lot of power and sway. So there was also that feeling of, well, is he untouchable now? Is there anything that he could do that would end things? Um, in part, I think he's leaving, though, because I think he knows Johnson's card is marked. I can't see Johnson being prime minister this time next year. Um, when the worst of Brexit kicks in, when the aftermath of, obviously, COVID is laid bare, I think him leaving as he did as well, via the front door of Downing Street with a big box, <laughs> was obviously staged. But the real reasons as to why, because there is always an agenda with everything that Cummings does, there is a reason behind it, whether or not we agree with it or don't agree with it. There is a reason for it um, between, you know, his, he was clearly trying to make sure that there was a very visible split and a very public sort of clean break. So the public have this idea that he's gone, he's, he's out of it, whether or not he actually is and whether behind the scenes he's still, you know, very involved. It's hard to say. That was the end of this first part of our end-of-year discussion. I hope you enjoyed the second part, which will be out very soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.